friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned to the MC Lars podcast, direct through the magic of the internet, from my voice to your ears. It is Monday, September 16th. This is episode 55 with Alec A. Head of the Brooklyn metal band Ghostbound, brought to you, as always, by the Patreon Larshan. Shout out to the new ones, Throwaway14, Stanley Yip, my Pittsburgh homie, and Jason Chan. Shout out to the old ones, Scott Fleming, Some Name, that's what they put in, that's tight, Some Name, and Justin Lanfear. So thank you all for your support. You keep this podcast going. You keep me going. I appreciate you. I'm on tour with the Aquabats, Cuckoo Kangaroo. Tour's off to a great start. We play Charlotte tonight. Last tour, our Charlotte show got canceled to reasons beyond my own control. So it's great to be able to come back and finally play Charlotte again. Tomorrow we're in Richmond, Virginia. Then we go up to Boston, then Asbury Park, New Jersey, and then the tour ends in Brooklyn. Then I'm out in October with Oakley Doakley, speaking of metal. They're a Ned Flanders-themed nettle band, heavy nettle. That's what they call it. We play San Diego, Costa Mesa, San Francisco, Bellingham, Portland, Seattle, Denver. Then I play Monterey, California on New Year's Eve. Alec is a dude I've known for 20-plus years now. Jeez, 20 years. Um, I met him through my friend Ryan, who was my DJ. Alec mentions that he was my drummer, but I, Al, Ryan never drummed with me. I just wanted to make that clear. He is a great drummer, though, great guy. He would help me do my live show and trigger the samples for the early Lars Horse and the Android shows in high school. And then Ryan design, helped me design the art for Insectivorous, which was my second official release, which pops up sometimes on eBay. But the Patreon supporters know. You sign up, you get those old records. Anyway, Alec was like one of the only kids in the Monterey, Carmel area who was into like weird underground music like I was. So we kind of bonded on that. And there were these open mics in Pacific Grove every Friday. And Alec and I would go sometimes. And he tells an interesting story about how the Friday after 9-11, they still hosted it. Alec did one of his first ever live performances. And I think he sang a Jeff Buckley song. So it was interesting to hear. I had not remembered that. I remembered we went to a lot of them, but I don't, I didn't remember we went to the one after 9-11. But uh, Alec talked about metal. So I got interested in, he talked about the Lords of Chaos movie, which after we did the interview, I went and saw and started watching black metal documentaries and listening to the old stuff. And that stuff is crazy. If you Google black metal history, it's crazy. You know, all of us who have been in bands, sometimes we want to kill our bandmates when they drive us nuts. Rarely do we actually do it. So the story of Mayhem, those of you unfamiliar, the bass player killed the guitarist from this band because he said it was in self-defense. But there's a new movie called Lords of Chaos, which Alec recommended, and I recommend it, and I watched it, and it's brutal, crazy history of the Norwegian black metal scene. But Alec, as far as we know, has never had any violent altercations with any of his bandmates. But we talk about his love of music. We talk about how he balances his career with his acting ambitions and his songwriting and why he prefers living on the East Coast to the West Coast. It's a great interview. So this is my interview with Ghostbound's Alec A. Head. And by the way, he loved the new Tool record. Okay, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here with California transplant, <laughs> Alec Ahead. Hey, Alec. Hello. Hello, Andrew. I've known you for years. We, we go back. 20 years plus? 
Yeah, just about. Yeah, about about yeah, two decades thereabouts. I remember I met you at um, New Year's Eve of two thousand. That sounds about right. Uh, 2000, 2000, 2001. Around that time, it was two thousand one. The real millennium. Yeah, it, yeah, it was the the true the true millennium when it starts. And you were friends, or you are friends with my first DJ, Ryan Lodge. Drummer as well, right? Yeah, but he never drummed with me. He drummed with you a, a new, some New Year's thing years later. Did he? He did. Okay. I remember because my, my other friends, Alex and Bobby, randomly showed up to Monterey Live mm. where you were performing, and he was your, your drummer that night. Oh, okay. So, yeah. he, so you went to high school with him. I did. Yeah. And it was like a small group of the nerdy, weird kids who liked this underground music. Pretty much that it was us. Yeah. It was like the three of us <laughs> who, and that pretty much encapsulates Carmel in a whole. And I remember <laughs> you perform at the open mic night in Pacific Grove, which was like the big, huge thing. It's the big event on Friday night. Essentially. And the thing is, like, uh, I, I was probably going to address this later, but it's largely because of you that I perform in front of people, period. Are you serious? In, in some way. Well, because I remember being like 14 or 15 and you randomly calling me and saying, hey, I'm picking you up. We're going to this open mic night. I'll, I'll be playing a few things. And it, and, uh, and you, had, you just bit, you had like a kid's boombox yeah. with you. And you would do very early iterations of what were then Lars Horace songs before you became known as MC Lars. Right. And you had all of these early iterations of like Rap Beth and a couple Edgar Allan Poe jingles. Right, and right. It, it took me a few. It took me a few times of going with you to that like Friday open mic to eventually work up the courage. And I think I remember when it was because it was like sh- shortly before you were leaving to go to Stanford. Ah, uh, yeah. And it was like the the Friday after nine eleven. Oh, really? It was actually like like the Friday following nine eleven. Oh, wow. Uh, and I decide, finally decided to go up and do like an acapella rendition of a Jeff Buckley song. And I think it was like the title track off of Grace. Wow. And so that it was, it was November 15th, 16th. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I believe whatever. so. I believe so. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I remember you singing that, but I don't, I didn't know it was like Friday after 9-11. I guess it was a very somber. It was, it was a weird, because it was packed. I remember it was completely packed. Yeah. And I ran into like. My, ge- my geometry teacher there randomly. I think he was just hanging out with friends. And then I, my, my friend Evan, with whom I used to play in a really crappy high school kind of garage metal band. Uh, we also there, I think he played, uh, I think he played like a Radiohead tune or something like that. Mm. And then I decided, you know what? I said, fuck it. I'll just go up and I'll do it. <laughs> and acapella. Acapella version of a song. And, and I recall it going really well that but that became a ritual for me for a good solid like six months to a year after that as, as after like, i'd left after you'd left as i would continue going and performing acapella tunes oh my gosh here Alec, and there and it was cool. lar- largely because that that one time when you called me up and said i'm picking you up you, you didn't even give me a choice you're like all right i'm coming i'm coming by you're gonna where do you live <laughs> you were brave you were yeah. brave i was like oh sure i'll, I'll, I'll do this <laughs> i remember it was um and you introduced me to faith no more and the smiths and like this cool older underground stuff that I, that wasn't really in my circle. I knew joy division because of nine inch nails, dead souls cover. Right. Yeah. But like some of the other cool stuff was Mr. Bungle. Yeah. You were like, yeah. you like weird stuff. This is some weird stuff. I, yeah. And I've, I've never quite, I've never gotten out of that rabbit hole. I'm still, I'm still kind of in that very much in that realm. And, uh, and I, I think thing, if anything, I've gotten, it's gotten darker and weirder over the years. Like it, it's never more unorthodox. Up. Yeah. It's never really let up. 
So Ghostbound is your current project. It is my, I would say it's my main project. So how long have you been doing that? Well, ah, that's a very interesting question in the respect that it's kind of been the thing that I've been preparing for all my life. <laughs> and I'm, like I started writing for it, uh, like as a, as, you know, a quote unquote songwriter, I started writing the songs that would eventually comprise the debut record when I was around 18 or 19. Oh, wow. So... Like so four years ago, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I'm an old, I'm an old eighteen. I, but, uh, but uh, no, uh, it was. I w- it would have been around uh, 2002, 2003 when I started writing for it, and so that that's when a good ha- the structure for a good half of the record came out when I was just kind of plinking around on a guitar and trying to, you know, make the kind of music that I wanted to hear <laughs> that that I hadn't heard yet from a band. That was basically the goal. Yeah. And all of it was based around images and kind of, I always described the band as having a cinematic atmosphere because as you may remember, I also worked in a video store for a really long time. Monster video. Yes. Monster video. Rest in peace. Indeed. Indeed. I think there's a, there's a hole where that place used to be. And I (laughs) I miss that. I miss that as an entity. Um, Yeah. We should, we should go back and talk about that. Yes. Time of your life. Um, but yeah, but but to kind of close the thing regarding Ghostbound is that it's you know very much cinematic and based around the sort of ethereal, otherworld, otherworldly sort of atmosphere that I try to conjure up. Yeah, and um, whenever I would hit a riff or a chord that sort of evoked that image, I would kind of try to structure it into something resembling a song. And first half of the record was like composed in a like a three or four year period in that time, and then I would return to it eight like ages later <laughs> to wow. finish it and put lyrics to it and finalize all the arrangements of it and eventually record it and release it outright, which I f- eventually did uh, on June 1st of 2018. Congratulations. Thank you. It was, it's every gray hair in my beard. It's <laughs> and I think, wait, I was at one of the release shows. Or you were at our show? album release show. Yeah, it was yeah, cool. Yeah. At um, St. What? St. Vitus. St. Vitus, yeah. which is like a very classic metal venue it's the pretty much the best venue in brooklyn I, awesome. I dare say in terms of like uh in terms of metal venues i, I it's i've played there like eight or nine times with in various bands over the years and yeah <laughs> and, I, and i've played there three times with ghostbound and there might be a fourth time coming up very soon so hey <laughs> so, that's cool so it, so uh I'm um, hoping to do. I, I love. I love playing that venue. I, I feel like it's a second home. It's good. Really good sound, huh? Yes, it has. It has really good sound, and uh, and um, they're able to actually, like, because I sing cleanly over heavy music. Yeah, that can often get lost in some of the more janky kind of podunk small clubs that we're often forced to play in. Right. Right. Uh, and so, but I like play. I like at least you know, going and playing at a venue that can, you know, where you can actually hear the vocals over, over the music. Um, because I feel like that's one of the selling points of the band is the fact that the vocals are very prominent. And you have good mix. pitch and good tone. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, that's I, important. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not, not many people, not, there are bands for whom that is not true, but, yeah. <laughs> but I appreciate you saying that. What, um, so what were some of your other projects, your other bands? Well, um, I had for years. I played in Cosmo Demonic, which was sort of a kind of a um, I guess you were like a blackened doom band, and I'm still sort of a peripheral member of that band. Um, I recently moved out of our rehearsal space that we we had with them. Okay, as of yesterday, actually. Oh. <laughs> um, just mostly due to you know my increased activity and being really busy with my other projects as both an actor and you know 
person for whom Ghostbound is like the main project. Yeah. Um, but I'm still very much, I still love the guys in that other band and I still am in touch with them. And we actually have a new record coming out that we recorded like three, almost three years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, uh, there are various reasons why that hadn't, hasn't happened quicker, but, uh, it's finally going to see the light of day and I'm actually genuinely excited for it to come out because we worked really hard on it. Um, I, I was for most, mostly I was only the guitarist for that band. Yeah. Um, and I would contribute the occasional arrangement here and there, but, um, it was, I joined Cosmo Demonic because I had randomly met Boz, uh, the front man, for, uh, and kind of, I guess, main songwriter at, when I was working at my, at an old former day job. And he, uh, we were both wearing metal band t-shirts and we, at the same time we're like, cool shirt. And, yeah. and we ended up, it turns out we had a lot in common musically and he had mentioned that he had this project he was trying to get off the ground and he had already recorded, you know, three or four songs to comprise what would eventually be the first record. And he sent them to me and I couldn't believe how unique it was. Like it, we, it, it was compl- unlike anything I had ever heard. And it, mm. right then and there, I was like, I'm in, I would love to be a part of this. Yeah. And for about four or five years, I was, you know, we, I joined, we ended up, kind of finalizing the first record, which was largely completed before I joined. But then I ended up adding a few guitar solos and a couple textures to the, and we ended up mixing and mastering that. Cool. And then we ended up playing and even touring for a little, for a few days here and there, um, played a few really big shows early on. And then, um, then we got down to writing and recording our next record, which is, uh, soon to see the light of day. And for that record, I actually did write one song and, uh, but we all largely cobbled it together as a band. It was definitely more a band effort than the first one. And I'm really like, from what I've heard of it, it sounds Im- immense. And I'm very, very excited for that to come out. That's um, cool. But I, I don't know like where, what the future lies in terms of <laughs> like what, where I'm like, if I'm going to be like still contributing after that, but none of it is like acrimonious or bad or anything. It's just, it's very adult. How it's you're very, no, it. yeah, it's very, yeah. it's very much just like, a, you know, a specific time in my life where I, <laughs> you know, where I just don't have the time or energy to devote to it as a full band member, but I'm hoping yeah. that I'm hoping they'll continue. And then I'm, I mean, if they need me as needed, I'll totally, I'll play with them tomorrow if they ask me, <laughs> you know, That's cool. so, so, uh, um, so that was primarily like, that was like the main other band for a while. And I briefly played, um, with a former coworker sort of like indie folk rock kind of project as a lead guitarist. And I, um, I had brought on Ghostbound's bassist, uh, Noah, for that. Um, and really, I just joined those bands as a means to sort of like finesse my own songwriting, just mm. because both of those bands were headed up by actual songwriters, by people who were, by one person who was able to cobble riffs or chords together in a way that made sense. Yeah. And by that point, I feel like I, that, was, that skill was something that was kind of eluding me. I, I wasn't like finishing songs I was amassing a lot of parts. Right, right. I hear <laughs> like you. Like yeah. thousands of little riffs that are all on my smartphone. Right. And never finishing them. And it was through working with those two bands, often simultaneously, that I was able to like bring, you know, I would, wouldn't just record one single riff. I would record a riff and its transition. And sooner or later, that would turn into a full-fledged song. And that's yeah. what kind of gave me the wherewithal and the skill to eventually go back and complete what would comprise all is Phantom, our debut, uh, Ghostbound's debut record. So, um, I owe, I have, I owe them, I owe those bands a lot for that reason alone. Um, so those are the, those have always been 
the main musical projects. I've always wanted Ghostbound to be my main focus as a musician because it's just yeah. it's very very personal and very very much a very much my labor of love that I've wanted to do for the last 15 years wow. <laughs> for better for better or worse. Wow. So the fact that it's that it's active and that we have a full lineup and that we're playing shows and we're we're writing new material now um I feel I feel like we've even though it doesn't seem like we've accomplished much in terms of people knowing who we are or album sales or anything like that I feel like we've we have a good thing going and a, and a decent amount of momentum um, and, and and a following, I feel. That's cool. For what it's worth. Do you do you feel like that wouldn't have been as easy to, if you'd stayed in California, especially on the Central Coast? Oh, yeah, no. No, yeah. yeah. No, yeah impossible. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have had the focus or the wherewithal or the people. Yeah. There just aren't many... Just aren't many musicians who are into heavier underground music over there. I know, <laughs> like just period. Do you? Did you grow up? Were you born on the Central Coast? I was born in L.A., but okay. I might as well have been born on the Central Coast because yeah. when I was a year old, we moved up to Monterey. Oh, Carmel. you were a year. Yeah, Monterey, oh, wow. Carmel, Pacific Grove, that whole area. Yeah, and I, you know, for you know, I, I think I think it was I lived the longest in Carmel in terms of you know, where I actually grew up. So I was kind of, a lot of my outlook was sort of shaped by the climate <laughs> of yeah. that area. So <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's inherent in Ghostbound's music. I think it's because I feel like we have a very lush green kind of verdant atmosphere to our sound. Yeah. And I, or if you just walk on scenic and look out onto the ocean, <laughs> like I feel like that's all in our sound. Yeah. Um, that's cool. And I, I feel like I've been shaped by that, uh, by that atmosphere it's it's interesting how all the artists and creative people who came out of the peninsula but it also feels like it's a distant thing you know like it's the generation before no one's really stayed well in well i mean who are we thinking of like ansel adams and, yeah and, kerouac and kerouac and, and who then and kerouac, Dylan, people they just passed through there. They yeah, were largely they, itinerant. Uh, Henry Miller, you know, yeah. yeah, and they but a lot of these people largely just passed through. That's and true, they and inspired them. Robert Louis Stevenson, yeah, Robert Louis Stevenson. He, he and people like right, you went to RLS High School, yeah, right? yeah. I went to RLS Lower School. I went to the grade. Oh, school. I didn't know that. Uh, and um, what I like, it's funny. Monter, I think I don't know if it speaks of like the small town provincialism that goes on in in from where we grew up. Mm -hmm. um, but Robert Louis Stevenson only lived there for about six months. And they make a big deal, and and, and and they like literally like he's he's everything in the in the, yeah. on the, the peninsula. name of schools after they him. Name schools after him. <laughs> There's a, a that haunted, purportedly haunted building that he supposedly had done a lot of his writings in, oh. uh, and in like downtown Monterey, I believe is where that is. Um, but it's funny that it's funny that that happens. It's that they'll just like they'll latch on to whatever famous name and <laughs> and Steinbeck kind of had a acrimonious relationship Steinbeck with had a very and I, and I love John Steinbeck like yeah. like I know we were all forced to read him in school yeah but I I gobbled him up I loved loved John Steinbeck genius yeah and uh but the people of Salinas hated him because <laughs> he talked ill about <laughs> he, the yeah, system. Yeah, yeah like yeah he was a muckraker he and for him to have a museum out there I feel he'd be turning in his grave <laughs> although it is admittedly a cool museum i had to go there a few times over the years for yeah. school trips and whatnot yeah um, but yeah it's totally not what steinbeck would have wanted <laughs> what and then like other than dream theater are there band like 
any metal bands like with members who spent a lot of time there like bigger well, I, bands? you know speaking of dream theater i think mike portnoy spent a very small amount of time out there okay because his father owned an art gallery in downtown carmel right he used to come into my work he used to come into the video store that i worked in oh really for the longest time um nice guy i've never been the biggest fan of dream theater but i but i've but i I always thought howard was a really nice guy Um, so the guy's dad the guy yeah mike portnoy's father howard portnoy uh, owned an art gallery Uh, i think howard has since passed on if i'm not mistaken i believe he has Mm. um but yeah he used to he was a customer he used to come in frequently to monster video but uh i i from the like the apocryphal story goes that I believe Dream Theater got its name from the Dream Theater, the, the amazing movie theater that rest no in longer, peace. rest in peace, yeah. that no longer exists. Some like two of my most memorable theater going experiences were spent in like eighth grade going to see movies there. I just remember have vivid images of in my mind of going to that place. Yeah, um, but I believe they got the name from there. But Mike Portnoy himself, uh, I think, spent most of his time in long island where dream theater was formed uh but um so he just thought it was a cool name yeah, i just think he thought it was a cool name that yeah. his, his dad had lived out there so he would occasionally go and visit i think is the story yeah i'm sure other people would know more than i <laughs> prog, prog nerds would know more <laughs> would know more than i wow so and then the, i remember the ja- going to the jazz festival that was always a big event well monterey and carmel were were very blues and jazz centric yeah it was a very blues and jazz centric town Almost in that kind of, I don't know, I've, I've, it, it was often very exhausting for me. Tell me more about that. That's um, interesting. Because it's an older fan base or? I think it's, yeah, that, that, could, that could be a reason. I, I can't, you know, I, I can't really comment as to like the reason behind it, but it was more like, like in high school, the jazz and blues musicians were always exalted in some, in like some, yeah, in some yeah. form, and yeah. those who, those of us who were a bit off the beaten path, who focused on, you know, weird post punk and black metal and yeah. death metal and things that I would like to listen to, you know, our our genres weren't valid, and, and and I'm not saying that people would treat me in that respect, but it's definitely the, it was definitely the the energy. <laughs> there were, that, and there were no scenes for that. No, not in, definitely not in Carmel. I think yeah. I think Carmel Valley had a, had had one death metal band, Legion Victorious. Do you oh, remember yeah. those guys? I heard of them. Yeah, I, I yeah. Don't and I, then do you remember? Do you remember Darvon Complex? Well, yeah, Ricky, Ricky's old band. I, yeah, Ricky yeah. Chastine's old band. Yeah, I remember Darvon Complex. Where Ryan drummed for them. Ryan oh, Lotz played drums for. Them. I didn't know that. Ryan, if you're listening, hello. Hope you're well. But um, yeah, there were there there were, but it wasn't really a scene. There were like two or three bands. And I played um, Pacific Grove High School with Darvon, uh, like September, October two thousand one. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. They played a lot of uh, a lot of high school gym shows, yeah. and, and that, that was see that was the scene. That was that was basically what my like myself, Ryan Lotz, my buddy Ross, Jeremy Blumke, uh, like all of the four of us would all randomly we, like our parents would drive us to these hardcore shows, um, and they would all be in you know. Pacific, the Pacific Grove Gym, or yeah. the Youth Center, or yeah, the Carmel uh, Youth Center. Right? Carmel Youth Center was one, um, and then there were the Pacific Grove Youth Center was another. Um, Did you know um, Alex Felsinger? I don't think so. He was, I think, a year a year or two younger than you. He went to Carmel and he would prom- he promoted shows. Did he? Okay, yeah, I did one of it, maybe a few of his shows, but he's a he's in portland now i think i don't think i that yeah. name sounds familiar but i, I know yeah. I'm, I'm sure if i saw if i saw a picture of him i'd remember i'd remember him but i don't i don't recall that his family went to my church 
So I knew him since he was like a little kid, oh. and then he became this punk rock this promoter. Punk, this punk rock promoter with did he have did he have uh, did he have plugs? No, he oh. he didn't. Did Ricky, <laughs> but he's vegan. Ricky, Ricky had those amazing plugs. I remember that. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, so we would always go to these like you know these hardcore shows and hardcore and punk wasn't really my thing. I like a lot of punk and hardcore, but like but I came from it from a metal background. So even I was sort of an outsider among outsiders. <laughs> yeah, and that's <laughs> there, weren't, interesting- there weren't there weren't there weren't really because there weren't there weren't any bands playing, you know, playing metal. Well, what? Okay, so let's talk about that because I'm sure I know a lot of music fans listen to this podcast, and, mm-hmm. and somebody I've talked to you a lot about, but I think it's a cool mm-hmm. conversation. There's that schism where you look at a band like Slayer, where okay. you have like Thrash, right? And thrash being like influenced by punk and similar to that. Mm -hmm. And then metal as a completely different thing. And just just like someone without a trained ear, Mm -hmm. they might not really think about the difference between all those subgenres, right? Mm -hmm. So largely, yeah. So like explain how like those shows would be different than the kind of shows, the music you you loved at that time. So like, so hardcore punk being, you know, this very much in that, uh, didn't flirt with too much in the ways of like satanic imagery or okay. didn't have it, didn't have any, didn't have anything like, you know, the, there, there was a specific difference in the attitude largely the image that was presented as opposed to yeah. not so much in terms of genre. Although if you listen to like, say a band like discharge or minor threat, you can tell the difference between them and Slayer. Right. Like by sound alone. Yeah. But there is a, there is eventually like a cross section where you hear a band that has sort of a, a D beat, which is what discharge pop popularized that, but da 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 is that D beat? That's D beat. Oh, D beat. The, the discharge beat. So do that again slower. Bum, 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 So that kind of pick up. That was sort of like a hardcore, that's a hardcore staple essentially, especially when discharge came around and made, made everything a little bit faster and heavier in the early 80s. Okay, so then a, what would a Slayer groove be like? Like, like something like a little bit faster and more steady. Yeah, right. Not as much swing to it. And Minor Threat, similarly, maybe a little faster. Yeah, and I would say like the, there's a, a, a cross-section where where the, the you know the actual, actual rhythm or the beats doesn't really necessarily matter <laughs> as much as it is the attitude that is presented. Because if you listen to say like Bad Brains, uh-huh. and back in the day, like 1981, there was I don't think there were there was any band playing faster than Bad Brains. Yeah, they were yeah. just like they were they were probably the most intense band around in terms of the actual sheer speed they were playing at. But speed is also very important in metal, isn't it? Yeah, I, well, it's important in certain styles of metal. Yeah. I, I would guess. I mean, I, I you know, in truth, as I'm getting older, I'm trying. I don't think t- so much in terms of genre. That's okay. myself. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I feel like, uh, specifically as a musician, as as a songwriter, as, as uh, like I, I feel like writing for the sake of genre is a very limited way to do it. Um, I would say writing for the sake of interesting music <laughs> is a more inclusive way to do it. So, would you could you give Ghostbound a genre name? Um, I, I, I describe us as an atmospheric rock band okay. and say with metal leanings because we, cause there is, we do have some of the staples that would, you know, fall under a metal umbrella. Like we do play with heavy guitars and with some distortion on them. We'd, would you call it proggy? 
I wouldn't, but other people have, and because they're not wrong. The, and what, what <laughs> Proggy's what different time signatures and I mean, and that's that's taken on a whole new thing in and of itself, hasn't yeah. it? Because it's because there was a period of time when progressive rock only described bands like Yes and King Crimson, and Rush, Rush uh, Dream Theater, Dream Theater, and uh, Marillion in the '80s, and um, all of these bands did have a sonic hallmark where they played, I guess, more technically, I suppose, than others of of the of the time they oh, would well, more technically than okay so what else so would, they would play more technically than the rolling stones i see you know or or they would play more they would switch time signatures faster or they and a lot of them had you know keyboards and hammond organs in the background and frequently yeah. it was um music from the head and not the heart <laughs> yeah um and i and i say this as somebody who loves rush and loves yes and loves king crimson yeah not so much dream theater well the but the rush <clears throat> lyrics were from the heart yeah, definitely, especially closer to the heart. Yeah, but um, but like largely, it was headier music, I guess, for lack of a better term. Okay. Um, so, but the progressive thing, and I, I want to, yeah. I'll hammer this point because, yeah. like, the progressive thing, eventually, the, like after as the years have gone on, there are a bunch of bands that get the progressive rock tag, but they just sound like heavier versions of Yes or. King Crimson. So Coed and Cambria, people call them prog post metal. But they definitely, I mean, they, they have full like passages that are very rush derivative to me. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that they're like, would you call them prog? I would say they have progressive elements. Okay. Like, well, but only in terms of that style of music, because the term progressive actually should refer to you're doing something different with the genre. Right, theoretically, doing something different with post-hardcore. Yeah, and and, and and all they're do, and they're adding, you know, elements of old-style prog rock to kind of a pop-punk emo background. Yeah. True. Um. So what? So I've heard bands that I feel are like truly progressive that aren't that are original that uh-huh. sound like no one out there. Uh huh. Um. Because for me, something when I'm hearing Cosmo Demonic before I joined, that to me was progressive, even though the music does not fall under that category at all. Only because it sounded like nothing else. So is there like progressive electronic music and, pro- and progressive hip hop? I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure there is. Maybe that's and uh, that I, would be I mean, indie I, rap. I mean, I think like the last Danny Brown record, uh, Atrocity Exhibition, yeah. had like it was all based on this weird like paranoid post-punk industrial sort of atmosphere where it just sounded like somebody who was scratching at his walls on an Adderall binge <laughs> and and... and Sound, but it's and it sounded like no other hip hop record I've ever heard. Would you call any Nine Inch Nails stuff progressive? Mm, not that I've heard, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But <laughs> what it, about? But so, so the defining elements are changing time signatures. No, not even that necessarily. It just has to be unique. That to me, to me, my definition of progressive is that it has to be has to be moving a genre forward mm-hmm. in some way and doing something that no one else is doing. So what if it's an amount, so like Nine Inch Nails, an amalgam of pop music and industrial music? Yeah, that's the same. With I like have, atmospheric sounds. And occasionally, they'll occasionally have some metallic guitars. Yeah. You know, and like thrown in there. Um, What's the biggest selling actual prog band, you think, like commercially? Commercially? Um, it's got, it. well, it, I don't think, it, it, Dream Theater is definitely up there. Yeah. Uh, it would probably be Rush. Yeah. I mean, in, in, even then, Rush had a very poppy period in the yeah. 80s. And I love that. I love 80s Rush. I'll fight anybody about 80s Rush. That's the best. Love Rush. 80s Rush. Yeah. Um, Grace Under Pressure is a great record. And if anybody disagrees, you'll know where to find me. <laughs> um, um, but um, 
I would I would say Rush, but yes, King Crimson. Those all those guys sold a ton of records. Is there prog black metal? Yeah, definitely. What are some examples of that? <sighs> well, once again, I think we'll, we're split. We'll, we're, we're splitting hairs a bit in terms of my definition of progressive versus what the actual genre refers to. Um, so, so your definition. My definition is that is that it's just is is just unique and avant garde in a way. And progressive, and, and, and not, but and it doesn't necessarily have to have odd time signatures or high pitched vocals or Hammond organs. And that would be the conventional. That definition. would be the conventional definition of progressive rock. And your definition, and my definition is, is just is is just strange, not strange, but like honest in a way that move like you can't easily categorize it. So with Zappa, would you consider him progressive? Yeah. Yeah, in a certain way, Captain cool. Beefheart as well. Yeah, I would, right. yeah, it would be just because it's you know while you know they don't bear any of the hallmarks of what the genre became came to know, they definitely did some things that were unique. What about Mr. Bungle? Same, yeah, same yeah. because they they were every genre <laughs> at one yeah. point. Yeah, they were every genre. They played it. They they played everything under the sun. In terms of black metal, yeah, um, the one that comes to mind the most for me is a band called Death Spell Omega, and I I'm. It, it's they're kind of they've gotten gone under some controversy recently for the fact that one of their members has some might have some questionable political ties, <laughs> which as many of those which guys is which do. is which as many of those guys do. <laughs> yeah. But I think I, I have reason to suspect that the other members don't harbor that. I think uh, he's just like a hired gun, and they're you know he just sings for them. Where are they from? They're from France. Okay, um, they're from France, and they 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 rarely give interviews. Nobody really knows what they look like. <laughs> And they, they're just, they make really bewildering, crazy black metal with this sort of death metal heft to it, Mm -hmm. where it's, but I, some of the, the, some of the chord structures are so dissonant and weird that I like can't even wrap my head around them. And uh, they recorded their most recent record live (laughs) in the studio and I can't even. What are they called again? Death Spell Omega. Okay, cool. I would say they're, they're uh, like a benchmark for me in terms of how I approach recent riffs that I've been coming up with, yeah. which are decidedly more dissonant and aggressive. Yeah. But they're, they, they're basically, if you take like a tape recorder and you snuck it into the ninth sphere of hell, that's what death spell Omega would sound like. <laughs> it's genuinely creepy. The ninth sphere of hell. That's yeah, like Dante. It's, yeah. It's, 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 yeah it's I, like, I got to check that out. It's, it's, it's challenging music. And, that, and that's ultimately my, like how, where I, how I describe truly progressive music, because I don't, like, I don't ha- I have nothing against Coheed and Cambria, but I wouldn't describe them as truly progressive or unique. I mean, maybe outside Claudio Sanchez's vocals, which are, you know, his own, mm-hmm. but I don't think the music is anything particularly original. Like it still does. Mm. It still does things that are hallmarks of the style. Well, the, and I, the idea is if you're completely avant-garde left field, you're not going to make a lot of money at it. Not at all. Probably. Not at all. And so this is a question of, so I don't know if you knew the drummer for Coheed raps and he used to be on my label. Well, didn't he Weird used to science? Is it the current drummer? Yeah. He left because he, he had a, he was had some drug problems and then he rejoined was after it, we did. Was it Chris for. Penny? No, Josh Eppert. Oh, 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 I remember. I remember that name. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. he's back with them. He got sober and it's good for him. And it's but, it, but like that guy just loves all music, doing hip hop and mm-hmm. everything. And it's like those guys have managed to sell a lot of records, you know. And it's, it's a question. They, they became enormously popular, and I remember yeah. when they weren't. I saw them live when I was. 18 yeah 19 and i remember it being a good show um where'd you see him uh catalyst santa cruz wow yeah who were they with 
It was it was a stacked bill of like post hardcore bands. Yeah, it was, it was like I think Vox V A U X played. There was oh, a band wow. called Bear versus Shark. There was another. Oh, I remember they were terrible. There was a, they were an emo two piece who played to a drum machine. Uh-huh. They were as emo as you could get, like dashboard confessional emo. Uh-huh. Um, called Jameson Parker. I remember them. Yeah, they were terrible. They were briefly signed Atlantic. <clears throat> were they? they? Broke up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They. They were. It was a complete. It was. It was the most the wussiest music I had ever heard. Most so, non-threatening music. So speaking of non-wussy music, did you read Lords of Chaos? I've read Lords of Chaos and I saw the film. Oh, there's a documentary. Uh, it's an act. No, a legit narrative film. I have to recently, see that. Recently, I have to see that. It's. I. I uh, the Is it book, good? I. I very much enjoyed the film. I, I see very it. much enjoyed the film. I. Where is, uh, is it? Like what on HBO or? It, it should be on Amazon streaming now. Okay. I saw it in theaters about six, seven months ago. Hang, Alex. Yeah, it was. It was. It's uh, stars a Culkin. It stars a Rory. Rory. Culkin. Oh, Rory Culkin. Yeah, he plays Euronymous in it. Oh my god, <laughs> he's really good in it. So here's what I want to talk about, Alex. The idea that what happens when brilliant artists, because I know you're a huge fan of the arts, do evil things, kill their bandmates. Can we still listen to Burzum and love them? No. Uh, well, I okay. I used to have. I used to be of two minds about this. Yeah. Um, I used to feel that as long as you're not, I, I feel like I used. I used to fly the flag of art, not the artist, very much. I used to fly that high. Yeah. Um, I think as perceptions have changed within the last few years, specifically, that's no longer okay. Yeah. Um, specifically, it largely like since we've seen kind of this neo-fascist rise within the u.s yeah. by virtue of our president who you wish you hadn't voted for no i'm kidding <laughs> ha, ha, ha. <laughs> i make oh, that joke a lot that's oh. actually yeah oh. <laughs> but i think i think largely due to i think i think he's emboldened a lot of very disgusting people <laughs> a lot of dark things we didn't know were so latent mm-hmm. right and and people aren't people who are now kind of hiding in the woodwork are now out and about and I think the perception has changed. So Hieronymus has some like problematic right wing. I don't know if right? Hieronymus did. Uh, Varg yeah. Vikernes did. Does. Oh, okay. The guy who murdered him does. Oh, right, right. Um, Hieronymus did a lot of disgusting shit too. I'm sure. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but I'm sure no, no one in that no one in the, that early black metal scene would come across as an angel. <laughs> but um, Varg Varg Vikernes, who became you know the guy behind Burzum. Um, you know, I used to love those first four Burzum records before he was incarcerated. I, that, that, when I was in high school, those were game changers for me. When did he kill his guitars? Nineties, early nineties. So did you know that about him? Yeah, everyone did. Yeah. It was, it was common knowledge. By the time I was getting into this music, it was 2000, you know, 2001. And, um, but it was, it's, it felt it, it, there was a disconnect. Like it didn't seem like there was any responsibility that we had to share in it. As listeners, that's interesting. Um, yeah. But as the times have as times have gone on, as times have changed, uh, I feel that it would be irresponsible to give that a platform. And you know, else back in the day, if you bought a Burzum CD, he's paid once. But now, if if our listeners like were to stream him, he would probably see some royalties eventually. Eventually, but yeah. I think I think a lot, I think he's been silenced now. I think they took him off of. Is YouTube he off Spotify? And, he's off of YouTube entirely. Oh wow! They they banned him from YouTube. Oh. Um, he had his own, he had a channel <laughs> really <laughs> interesting um, and uh yeah i i feel like ultimately i it's not hard to find musicians who are good people right or better people people who aren't at least nazis or murderers 
or sex offenders or (laughs) or things like that. I feel I, there used to be a period of time where I didn't care that it was the art and not the artist. And I could appreciate the music independent of who the person was, but I, I don't feel that way anymore. I I, I feel very strongly that it's like, I, I get really disappointed now when I hear that certain musicians harbor like right wing views or, I, one of my favorite musicians ever, a guy named Rob Miller, who was the frontman of Amoebics, who were like a, a great crust punk band in the eighties, mm-hmm. really influential band. Um, he had he had a new band that came across in the last few years called Tau Cross that released two or three records, and um, right on the eve of when this new record was supposed to come out, uh, their label dropped them because they found out that in the li- in the line the thank you notes of the liner notes, uh, a prominent Holocaust denier was, <laughs> was thanked. Mm. And this to me was the last person that I would have expected to harbor these kind of views. Right. Cause these guys were squatter punks, crust punks, like anarchist left wing crust punks in the eighties. Wow. And well, I wonder what his connection to that guy would be. Well, I think, I think, I don't know. Maybe there is, there, there, there's a lot of conversation out there where, you know, those who rebelled in their youth, eventually go so far left they eventually turn right mm. and i think he just he just fell off the deep end somehow and he and he and his do you think he's a holocaust denier that was rob miller a holocaust denier yeah i think he has doubts yeah. <laughs> i don't i don't i can't speak for him but i yeah. but i definitely think that he you know for him to thank a, a, a person who is a holocaust denier in his liner notes a very prominent writer who right. harbors those views uh, I don't know. You have you have you have to take some responsibility. You yeah. Know? As a, as a listener and an artist, you have to take some responsibility. And um, I feel that to give that a platform is irresponsible. So I don't know if you know one of my songs. I talk about um, my hot topic is not punk rock. I say, yeah, I love yeah, yeah, old song. Love I that say, song. Old one. Thanks, man. I say yeah. G.G. Allen was punk rock, and I get a lot of backlash for that because in the years it's come out that he was. Everyone knew he was a scumbag, but like more stuff he did. And so this question of, I wish in that song I'd said Wesley Willis was punk rock or someone <laughs> like more happy. Well, Gigi Allen was a scumbag, but is there any, I, I forget, correct me if I'm wrong. Was he politically unsound? I don't know about his <laughs> politics, but I, I guess he was horrible to women. and He was horrible to everybody men. who attend his shows. Yeah. To attend yeah. his shows. Um I don't know. Gigi Allen exists on a completely different level because he he was almost performance art as life. Have you seen the documentary about him? Hated is that yeah. is that what it's called? Yeah. I haven't actually seen that, but it's I, pretty disgusting. Yeah, yeah, but like uh, you, you, the guy who directed it actually went and directed that Will Ferrell movie, Old School. I think mm-hmm. Todd Phillips. And he did Joker. He's he's do, currently Joker Which, is coming out very soon. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, but uh, yeah, because Gigi Allen, you you don't really get more punk rock than Gigi Allen. He was he because he was anarchy personified. Like he didn't, he he didn't hold any social norms as sacred. No, um, and that, and that in and of itself is punk rock. So you shouldn't beat yourself up over that. Well, thank specifically. you. I appreciate. If that. you get hate mail over that, <laughs> yeah. but it, it would be it would be worse if you said uh, screwdriver is punk rock. Oh, <laughs> they're like a hate core. Yeah, they were they were a skinhead band. Yeah, they right, right. Band. That's interesting. Or, <laughs> all that you know, it's like the the whole like edge lord meme culture of these kids who are online like racist trolling it's like a similar underground culture to like going to see a hardcore band a racist skinhead band you know it's this idea that like you're gonna be so unorthodox and like 
counter the system because that's what punk is in a way, but it's emboldens. I don't know. It's just interesting. Uh, people, about. people. I think people who think too much in terms of scene, like I like. I don't give a fuck about the metal scene. Yeah. No, I I don't care at all about the metal scene. Like I listen to the music. Would you say there's a scene, one scene, or is it like a thousand little scenes? I think it's a thousand little scenes, but it's but in my, it, like you know, there's a there's a Brooklyn metal scene. How would you typify that? I don't I don't partake in it. I yeah. I go to see shows very seldom. The only shows you play I play shows I play the only the only time I go to see shows is when I'm playing them. Yeah, um, and it take it takes an awful lot for me to leave my apartment. Right, like I would prefer to just hang out with my wife and, <laughs> and your my cats, cats and <laughs> play guitar and write songs. Like yeah. <laughs> like, um. And I and and I'm. This isn't to say like I love a lot of my friends in the scene at large. In fact, the metal scene. I, I dare say the metal scene, on a whole, uh, unless you were to go into, you know, like you know certain certain parts of you know inland Oregon or <laughs> like parts where there's a high concentration of white supremacists. Most of the metal scene that I find, at least in New York and the surrounding areas are just some of the nicest, most marshmallowy people I've ever met. Just complete nerds. nerds. Yeah. Um, Would you say there's more hate, hateful metal bands or more hateful hardcore bands? <laughs> that's a very good question. Because um, I don't know. Definitely metal by now. Really? Yeah. Especially in in the greater greater Europe area. Oh well. Like if we're yeah. if we're taking if we're thinking globally, you know, but maybe more hateful. Um, hardcore bands in the U.S. I don't, I don't know. know. I really don't know. I really can't answer that. Yeah, uh, it, it, because there's a certain point where all these bands play together. <laughs> you right, know, they're right, all right. part of the same. Right, they're all part of the same overall heavy music. How how many years did you work at Monster Video? Seven years. Wow. Yeah. And during that time, did you see a shift to DVDs from VHS? Oh, pretty much immediately when yeah. I joined. When I started working there at age, I was 16 when I started working there. Um, by that point, the VHS had already died. They'd already stopped making them largely. Mm. Uh, so it was, so it was DVD all the way. How many, so how many days a week did you work there? Usually three or four, sometimes five. And how many hours at a time? Six to eight. Jeez Louise. So you had regular customers mm -hmm. that you knew their tastes. Very much. And yeah. they would trust your like recommendations. Largely. I mean, that was my education largely. I mean, I, I was obsessed with film. Just obsessed. That's uh, why you've named uh, your cats after directors. Yes, I have uh, Ingmar, Fellini, and well, Sylvia isn't named after a director, but it might be Sylvia Plath. Yeah, but <laughs> another great, another great, another 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 positive role model. <laughs> um, but um, but you know, I, I was I was obsessed with film for the longest time um, before I you know before I even set foot on the stage as an actor. I was I was just obsessed with film filmmakers and directors and actors and. Um, just constantly, um, I, I describe it as bulimically taking movies home and just like, just taking them home, putting them in, yeah, putting them back, bringing another one home. So you get to rent obsessive movies for free. That's pretty cool. Yeah. For free. And it was the great, it was, it was, to me, it was like one of the, the greatest forms of education because it gave me, uh, it gave me a frame of reference, which I feel is a very important underrated aspect of being a human being uh -huh. is having a wide frame of reference and being able to like, because it would, it would always send me down a rabbit hole. I would yeah. be obsessed with a specific film and say that this film was based on a book by a certain author. I would go and find books by this author or the, whatever the book was based on. I would yeah. read those books. Same thing with Same thing with music. I would branch off like, oh, this member is this member is in another band. Let's check out that band. Yeah, and then, yeah. Oh, the drummer used to play in it, and like 
having an endless curiosity about the three or four things that really interest me, which is music, film, and acting. And as a, someone working in one of those places, you became like this proprietary gatekeeper of this culture and this world that you were immersed in and had tastes about. And it's like kind of a, in a way, it's like a nostalgic past kind of thing, right? In a way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, Gatekeeper is an interesting term because that's taken on a different meaning in recent in yeah. recent years because it it, descri- it describes somebody who you know feels that their opinion is the be all the only all, one the only one and I so I feel like sometimes I can come across that way yeah um, but gatekeeper in that people have to come to you to get the videos I guess is I guess so that. yeah 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 um, um, but but it was it was just sort of a, a way to educate myself in a way that no school could yeah. You know? Yeah, especially being in a place where we were kind of rural and isolated. Yeah, from bigger cities. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and I mean, the thing is, with in Carmela, like in order to see a good band, you had to go two hours north to San Francisco. Yeah, or sometimes you would go to Santa Cruz an hour or yeah. so. But, um, like you know, it almost forced you to kind of sit and watch. What forced me to sit and watch a ton of movies and listen to a ton of records. And, yeah, and just kind of gather all of these influences. What um. When did you start acting? Uh, I would say in middle school, but I didn't start to take it really seriously until I was around 18, 19. Okay. Uh, when I started doing it in my senior year of high school. Yeah. And then um, I spent four, three or four more years on the Monterey Peninsula just doing community theater and going to, coll- going to MPC, Monterey Peninsula College, mm. um, just acting in show after show after show after show after show. And it came point where I was sort of feeling like I needed to get out. Yeah. And that's what moved me to New York. Uh, and all I did was act and then silently, you know, to my, by, for myself, kind of write more music just by my lonesome for the following like five or six years until I decided to quit acting for about six years just, just to focus on music. Because mm. I figured I wouldn't get this record done if I was doing both at the same time. And now you're acting again? Now I'm acting again, yeah. How do you learn lines? Yeah. That seems like Easily. one of the hardest. No, it's the easiest thing in the world. What's your technique? Just read it. Okay. Seriously, it's it's it's. I, I think very visually. Yeah. So I can remember how the words appear on a page. Oh, interesting. And uh, but you used to do it in high school. I did, but I never had a big role. I would be okay. in the chorus, or I would. Yeah, I never had any lines actually. Really, maybe like one in the play. You just read it. That, that's that's the thing. Like for me, it's the, the least of my worries is the lines. That sounds like a, a talent, though. It sounds like some people are more gifted with. The I don't photographic see. Memory. I don't think it's not. A, it's not even a photographic memory. You just you just drill it. You just keep reading until you don't have to think about it anymore. And the emotion kind of drives what that character would logically say if you know the character. Well, if you're if you if you've done your homework, yeah. But yeah. but there comes there's other other things that you can. I I it's hard for me to talk about acting technique because it's sort of like talking about fingerprints. Uh-huh. Where it's like where it changes from part to part. Sure. And everyone's is different. Yeah. So you never really. Um, I'm cool with anything as long as it gets you there. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, I'm cool with anything as long as it gets you there and as long as it doesn't impede my own my own work, you know. Have you ever been on stage and you know you don't know the exact line, but you say something that's close enough? I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure I've done that. But that ha- that's just part of like a musician playing like a, a minor chord instead of a major chord. Oh, yeah, hitting a wrong note. Yeah, that yeah. happens all the time. But, that, but that's part of how much fun it is when you're yeah. on stage because anything can happen. Literally anything can happen. Right. That's why, that's why doing, <laughs> doing a play is amazing is because like anything could go wrong. And the show must go on. And you have to figure out a problem. Like I had uh, the third show Ghostbound played was a lesson in problem solving because I broke a string 
And as soon as I broke a string, our bassist's amp blew out. <laughs> and oh. and I was trying to like, it turned out to be the string that I was soloing on. It was a very simple solo. that, And I was like, oh, I'm not going to do this. So I just kind of grabbed the mic and started front manning it up. Yeah, you're right, right, right. I was like, oh, we're, going to, we're going to end the song. We're going to... We're going to come make the song come to its natural conclusion. We're right. not going to stop the song. And it was like, what can I do in this moment to alleviate the sheer terror of <laughs> this happening in yeah. this second? And so, and I found if you don't if you don't acknowledge that something's gone bad, often people don't know. No, yeah. they don't at all. They usually they don't. Or or it's it can sometimes enhance it. It can make the energy better. I don't. I'm not a huge fan of improvisation for its own sake. Uh huh. Um, especially in an acting sense, because I find improv comedy largely to be like cringeworthy. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but I love it as a way to get yourself out of a pickle. Like if the set falls down, yeah. like how, what are you going to do? You gotta, you have to you gotta do something. say something. You have yeah. to do something. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's great. Have you ever had an audience member heckle you while you're acting? Never. Yeah. Never. Yeah. That would be, that'd be hard. Ha- that'd be hard. Cause you got to keep it together. <clears throat> I have, I do remember I was in a play once where a guy's cell phone went off like four times Ugh. and he like effectively ruined the first act of the play. And everyone was, turned and looked yeah, at them. It was complete, complete energy. Did any of the actors say anything? No, but uh, we were given free reign. Like I, I like that. Our director said you could go up and take his phone from him if you want. If it goes again, if it goes off again. And I know certain. I know uh, Patty Lupone has a tendency to do that on Broadway when, uh, yeah. when she <laughs> when, when she goes and grabs someone's phone when they when when it goes off during a monologue or what have you. And I, right. I actually have a lot of respect for that. Yeah, I love that. I wasn't on stage when the person's phone went off uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was in something where the door, the entrance that somebody was using to enter on stage, the door was stuck. So they had to go around. And, but I mean, that's yeah. such a little, that's a non-story. That does, right, that's right. not exciting at all. Yeah. Um, and probably only they knew. I thought it was pretty funny myself. Yeah. I was on stage and I was like, well, she's coming. I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> just like <laughs> but um, no, I, 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 when I was around 20, I remember leaving my key prop backstage like like I, I was playing a character who was a photographer and i had one scene that with involving a camera and i left the camera backstage oh no and i remember having to adapt all of my lines to fit the future tense because oh. like, it was all about like I will i'm a photographer a- i'll take a picture of you like or it's that's <laughs> like it's like and my the person on stage with me was like oh he sure will he's he's very so good they, at this. they rolled with it your they, cast members. oh yeah yeah that's pretty good. That's I, a good story. Yeah, it's, it's 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 a bit tame, isn't it? Do you have an all-time favorite role that I've done? Yeah. Um I played Yepakadoff in The Cherry Orchard mm. uh, about 10 years ago and that was one of the best things I've ever done. So I'm I'm unfamiliar with that piece. What's the what's the play? So Cherry Orchard is one of Chekhov's plays, Anton okay. Chekhov, and it uh, it's about uh kind of a, ma- a matriarch of this estate mm-hmm. who uh um, is in danger of losing her family home, which is an estate on board, you know, this kind of, this, or, this, ch- this cherry orchard, the titular cherry orchard. And um, it's, it's basically just like Chekhov write, wrote plays in a way where you think nothing happens, but l- pretty much everything happens. What era was he? Early 1900s. So that's <laughs> so like 1910. Pre-communist Pre- revolution? Um, just about. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Pekarov is like the sad clown, kind of a steward of the the estate, 
and he's he's always tripping over shit and yeah. uh he's he's hopelessly in love with somebody who doesn't quite share mm. his uh his affections and it's just like this idea of wanting something so yeah. much that you stumble over yourself every time oh wow like it'd be easy to fall into the realm of being a total clown you know and just like a false staff yeah, yeah but 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 you had you have to you have to have that need and that want as well and the idea that you want something so badly you keep breaking shit on accident you know just like <laughs> you know that that was that was i had a lot of fun inhabiting that character sounds like a, an emotionally like feeling but kind of exhausting character to walk that tightrope oh it was great yeah yeah i learned a lot about myself during that during that during that and there's another i did this in a, another play around seven years ago seven and a half years ago um it's a short play that my friend michael sean mcginnis wrote called glyph and it was like a 15 minute short play about um cavemen cave people mm. um and over the course it, basically it's like i'm the head of the tribe has just come back from a big mammoth hunt many months away having brought home like the meat for the oncoming winter and i was his uh, the person who was carrying the meat to chronicle you know the the hunt so uh-huh. to speak and everybody like at the beginning of the play everybody was speaking in sort of like moop go here like 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 ad modifiers weren't part of the right right <laughs> part of the part of like moop go here he say this and things yeah, like that yeah. and i and they they after we come back from this mammoth hunt, we're then asked to chronicle what happened. And as I'm telling my story, my lines become increasingly more complex until I'm speaking in iambic pentameter. Oh, that's pretty cool. And and suddenly I'm, I'm like eloquent and yeah. owning the room for the first time. And it gets to the point where the tri- the main head of the tribe is so incensed by this, that he ends up beating the shit out of me and ripping out my tongue. Because you've shown your droidness yeah. with the language, yeah. And he's so he rips out my. T- I got to have I got to have my tongue ripped out on stage. Wow, that was amazing, and and that also was very emotionally exhausting because the whole last five minutes of it was me like waking up after having my tongue ripped out, <laughs> oh my god, and realizing that this gift is now gone. <laughs> and there's that. Um, recently, as of um, like a month ago, I did uh, a, a another short play. Um, an original by an author named Larry Wrinkle, who's, I think he's based out of Long Island, but um, he, uh, it's called The Flying Dutchman Boards the Staten Island Ferry. And uh, do you know Wagner at all? Do you know? I'm familiar with yeah, the name, but. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't too much either before yeah. I did this, but it was like, it was, you know, these, it was this young. Did he do the Ride of the Valkyries? He did, he did the the Ring, uh, or, oh. or the Wagner's The Ring trilogy or. Oh, okay. Or The Ring Cycle or whatever it's called. Okay. And, in the flight of the Valkyries as well. Yeah. Um, and then, and it's this gay couple who had just come from seeing uh, a production of the flying Dutchman at the Met. One of whom is very starry eyed and obsessed with the like operatic tradition of love. And his boyfriend is completely just like not having it. Yeah. <laughs> they eventually get into a little tiff and they break up. Enter the Dutchman played by me. <laughs> and is, and I'm the actual flying Dutchman oh. and I'm, convinced that this starry-eyed young one is the person to help me lift the curse because the flying dutchman's a 500 year old pirate who's confined to sail the seven seas and so i got to have full old age makeup and in that's like amazing that's gray what's on hair. the ferry gray, yeah gray hair and and like i've 
like it's very rare in New York specifically that as an actor you get the opportunity to go full character uh-huh. in, in that you get old age makeup gray hair like you, you they always cast age appropriate there's never there's never an occasion there's so, where, many there's so many of us out there but for whatever reason they let me do this i just realized that's why the simpsons the restaurant they go to the seafood restaurant is called the frying dutchman yeah it's a pun on yeah, that it is definitely a pun on that that's pretty good simpsons have a lot of in jokes i know there's a whole there's a the, the simpsons had a thomas pynchon episode was i think he was on two of them he was on, he was on two of them and that <laughs> yeah. blew my mind i <laughs> I was like, he, his actual voice is on it. Wow, but he had a bag over his he head. He had a bag right? over his head. Yeah. He's like, he had like a cookbook called The Frying of Latka 49. That's pretty good. And I'm just like, that's such an obscure such reference. A- talk about, and talk and going back to what we were talking about earlier about like progressive music isn't going to find a big audience. There are those bands that might. have done, yeah, that have <laughs> done that, who have found a way to like make, to sell a million records and do that but most of some of them have done that at the expense of kind of dubbing down their sound not in a bad way necessarily uh, but making it more accessible right i think the poster child for that will always be radiohead Mm. um interesting because i I don't think they're particularly progressive but fans who haven't heard actual progressive music say they are (laughs) yeah tool tool, another one oh dad have you heard their new one Mm, it's boring as hell really it's terrible like guitarist mike loves it i haven't heard it I, uh, what don't you like about it? Yeah, it's it's getting panned. Um, my issue, my issue with Tool, and Tool hasn't aged well for me at all. Like in term, like none of their records have really aged well for me. When I was in grade school and high school, I loved, loved, loved. What about, loved what about Undertow? See, Undertow, I always thought was hampered by a really poor production job. Uh-huh. I always thought the guitar, the guitar sound on it was really weak. So now, I, I just think it was not a very powerful sounding record. I really liked Anima when it came out. Oh, that was um, the second one? That was the second full length. Yeah. Um, and, and that, what songs were on that? Uh, well, it had uh, Stink Fist and oh, oh, that uh, was 46 that. and 2. Got Alex it, Gray art. Is like that what that LSD was? art. Yeah, stuff. yeah. Okay, so you do, you feel it's just, what, too? Well, my, my issue with Tool is that rhythmically, it's always really interesting. Uh-huh. Um, because what Danny Carey and Justin Chancellor always do on drums and bass, respectively, is always really... You know, cool and mathy and polyrhythmic and all those th- those buzzwords that people like to throw out. But then I always find the guitar playing really dull. Do you think it counters it and weights it down? No, I feel like it's it's always the same drop D pentatonic riffs. Uh-huh. It's always it's always really basic sounding to me. Are they ever like any fancy guitar solos? Never, but I don't need fancy guitar solos. I just mm-hmm. need interesting guitar playing but don't you think counterpoint that maynard is so like his voice is so all over See, the place i like maynard i don't have i have no issues with maynard's vocal but don't you think having like i feel like with hip-hop i mean we're talking about different genres if something is simple if a beat is driving and good a lyricist will stand out more so maybe mm-hmm. having polyrhythmic rhythms and then a simpler guitar allows the, the i don't think other it works to shine i don't think it works what are examples of it working for bands that have those elements that you like um uh, sugar Early on, um, I'm not. I can't really. Meshuggah were very much a gateway band for me. I don't really mm. listen to them anymore. Yeah. But when they first, when I first heard "Destroy a Race Improve" as a 14 year old, like, because the riffs were the riffs they were chugging on like very simple two chord riffs, but they were in weird time signatures. Like the drums would be going mm. in four four, and the guitars would be in like thirteen eight, and it would be just it would be They'd just make it work. It would, it would work in this weirdly mechanical sort of yeah sort of sound um, so okay so so my friend mike i did an episode with him his opinion is that this album's really grown on him he had he he is a tour manager so he had to drive across the country and he listened to album mm-hmm. like 20 times yeah. 
And he said it really grew on him. And the Ghostbound record's 65 minutes long. It's a long record by most standards. Yeah. And I love, I'm you and I are both of the era that understands what it's like to open up a CD, take it out, put it in a CD player. Smell it. Smell it. Take, take out the take out the liner notes and actually have an experience. Yeah, yeah. Actually have a personal experience. With yeah. Record. And that's something I'll always have. Did you stream the new tour? Did you buy it physically? I will never buy it. Yeah. No. <laughs> that, but no. maybe if you'd had that experience, I'm just being no, devil's like, advocate. I don't think I would, because I have no interest in it. Yeah. Like Tool does nothing for me. Yeah. Like I listened to one song, the one song that premiered, and uh-huh. I'm like, this is the most, this is completely... This is like the color beige set to music to me. <laughs> like it's completely inessential. Not right. not enough that it's bad, just unimaginative. Interesting. And um like it like it sounds like Tool, don't get me wrong, uh-huh. but at this point in their career, Tool is essentially covering themselves and calling it a record. Mm. <laughs> that's my that's my thing. Right, right. Um, that's my take. Well, on. I haven't heard it. So I only I heard the know. one song, by the way. That's I say that oh, as somebody. Okay. I say that as somebody who's only heard the one song. But I'd imagine knowing what I know about Tool and how the previous records have sounded, uh-huh. because Lateralis wasn't that good either. Neither was Ten Thousand Days to me. Right. So it's interesting, though. It's like one of the last bands of that era still putting out music. You know. Well, it took them thirteen years. Yeah, I know, right? Um, but uh, but were then, you a Perfect Circle fan? I like. No? I see. I see. I think Amer de Noms, the the first a Perfect Circle record is. It, age is better than any tool record personally wow. and I'll, I'll fight i'll fight people on that because wow. there's an atmosphere to it and there's some real heart to it judith judith yeah. yeah and uh yeah that whole first record is great i haven't listened to the 13th step since it came out but i'm going to i'm gonna i promised myself i'd pull it out again is and that see their other their second record mm. um but there's like a, a there's like an earnest to the lyrics of it i think maynard's really kind of raring wearing a lot of his heart on his sleeve during so on some of the songs whereas like almost nothing about tool moves me right <laughs> and, and that's the thing eventually i'll need to be moved like it's right. not enough for a song to rock it has to remind me of something it has to it has to take me somewhere and or move me considerably so you're so ghostbound where can people find it what do you bound? direct people? I direct Speaking people. Speaking of good music, unlike, of, Tool. Uh, unlike Tool, um, <laughs> I'm offering our full-length record, which is entitled All is Phantom, um, on our Bandcamp page, which is www.ghostbound.bandcamp.com. And moreover, I am offering it for free. Are you serious? Yeah, I am indeed serious. I am offering it for a pay-what-you-will scale. So you know people are going to be generous because they heard this interview. I would hope so. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it doesn't really matter. Give me, give me two bucks. That's cool. I, I'll own all your data. Are you? On, <laughs> is it on Spotify and stuff too? It is on Spotify. However, I don't think I am. I don't think I benefit from the Spotify uh, streaming at all. Okay. Uh, because I think our our now former label has or our scratch that our soon to be former label. <laughs> Uh, will will would have put that up there. Okay. Um. So whatever you you stream in that regard will go to them. Um. It's fine. It's not like we would make much off of Spotify anyway, because what is it? Every five thousand plays leads to like point zero 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 one percent of a cent. Isn't that how it works? The benefit of Spotify is if you love an artist, this you listen to them a lot, and then they get more streams versus paying them once. Fair but, enough. But, okay, that that does that actually is pretty cool. But I do know what you're saying like like the ratio is it could be better. I I, I do understand Google Music actually has a much better 
uh, way of parsing that out. That's good, from what I understand. Um, I don't. I think. I think we've. I don't think we're on Google Music. We might be. I don't know. Um, but yeah, people can listen to us on all the various streaming platforms. I'm sure. Um, but we would prefer if you go to directly to our Bandcamp page and either stream or buy it directly. Send that cheddar. So we had plans to make a music video for one of the songs on the record entitled "Roof and Wall," which is the one song on the record that's sort of an outright black metal kind of assault. Um, we employed the person who is your former DJ and former drummer and one of my old friends from high school, Ryan Lotz, to animate a video for it. And he and his wife were working on it. They had um, come up with a storyboard animatic for it. And uh, it just blew me away when he showed it to me. Right. And then um, we were getting ready to work more on it together. But then unfortunately, Ryan fell on some hard times. I think his house actually burned down. Um, which is horribly tragic, and uh, you know, obviously, our, and he was—they were okay. Thank goodness. they were okay. Uh, thank you to that. I'm eternally grateful for that. But unfortunately, life did get in the way, and the video is no longer on the table. But we do have the storyboard animatic that I still feel is really good, and moreover, it will draw attention to Ryan's work, which I feel is amazing. So hopefully, what will that will actually get people get eyes on his work, and that's tight. And hopefully, he'll get more work out of that because truly like I, if I wish I could share the feeling that I had upon seeing it for the first time with the entire world, because I feel like it would have caused some great change because <laughs> it was a very joyful feeling. You um, show it to me. I think it's cool. Oh, it, it's, it's definitely like it, it encapsulates the atmosphere of the song. Perfect. I think we should end with the song and then people that can then watch the animatic. Uh, that, that Are you down with great. that? I am down with that. So tell what's the song about? Um, well, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be vague about that um, because, I don't know, it's, I, the lyrics of this record deal specifically a lot with uh, the, the passing of a soul to another realm. Um, and it is, a, I mean, for, at the risk of giving away too much, it's a very personal record for me. Um, I feel there are some songs that deal more directly with the topic and other songs kind of deal more uh, on a story narrative, uh, I, I guess, metaphorical, allegorical mm-hmm. level. Um, in the case of this song, it definitely, I, like I definitely kind of viewed it more from the storyteller's perspective as opposed to something that's directly like from me as Alec, as an entity. But um, there is still a lot of that in there. Um, and so essentially what I wanted it to do is what I wanted to depict in it was um, basically two people as they traverse this sort of otherworldly landscape. Mm. Um, and one of them is trying to help the other as they get through to the other side. And um, a lot of it deals with, you know, the ly- lyrics are you're, you know, you're addressing a ghost directly who's lost and doesn't know where to go. So you're trying to help that person. So that's essentially what the atmosphere of the song tries to conjure up. And I feel the lyrics are pretty straightforward in that respect. Yeah. That's um, cool. And uh, I think the, the, the storyboard animatic music video that Ryan did is um, kind of not, not so much a literal take on song. It's kind of has, it kind of goes off in its own direction, yeah. which I would, which I prefer. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's essentially what it's about. I wanted to conjure up a kind of a more threatening, uh, not so much, he- not so much hellish, but this kind of ethereal atmosphere. 
That's cool. Which is the whole record has sort of has this sort of quality to it, but some songs are friendlier than others. Other songs are more, uh, this one that this song is definitely, I think the more menacing song on the record. What I like about it is your album is your voice is very, the melody is clear and strong, but the guitars are so like brutal and heavy. It's a cool juxtaposition. I haven't heard a lot. Thank you. Well, I, one thing I can take home and one thing I know that helps me sleep well at night is the idea that like, regardless of what people think about the record, like whether or not it's good or bad, what the great takeaway that I get is that nobody knows how to describe it. Mm. And I, that's something I will wear as a badge of honor. That's good. And like it's completely, that's completely what I wanted. You know what I've come to realize, especially in the past two or three years, ultimately it doesn't matter what people think. If you think something's dope, that's it really doesn't. Important. Yeah, it really doesn't. I, I, like, I'm, I'm, I, I still have. Thankfully, I, I haven't gotten rid of this sort of childlike sense of gratitude when people do tell me they like my work. Yeah, I'm always surprised, <laughs> but I am also. I know that my record's good. That's like the that's best, the thing. Man. That's the thing. Like, it's not. It's not a question of ego. Yeah, I accomplished what I set out to do. Right, and it took me 15 years, but I did it, and I right. did it myself. Right, that's the thing. That's that's. It's something, it's, it's basically my apotheosis as an artist. <laughs> like, That's cool. And I was able to accomplish it, but now it's on to the next thing. Right. Um, and we're working on new music. We have a new EP that we are almost, we've done demoing, um, mostly of songs made up, uh, old, old, old songs from when I was like 18, 19 that didn't make the finished record that I thought were maybe too simple or too samey, but mm. I thought would kind of suit as its own suite of short shorter songs uh i think on instagram i'm ghostbound nyc that's right um and you play like semi regularly right every few months so i recommend anyone listening who's on (laughs) the east coast come see alec because he's a great performer and he's also one of the nicest guys i know oh that's so sweet of you you learn a lot about music from him i appreciate seeing you i appreciate seeing you too but all right cool peace bye And it was shining for me and me.
All right, Alec, thank you. That was a great interview. Great song. Look forward to the uh, animatic of that song on the Ghostbound YouTube channel. This week's Larshan of the Week is a fan from Ohio. Her name is Amanda. Check out her awesome story and her message. Hi, my name is Amanda. I'm from Lorraine, Ohio. Um, The first time I heard about you was through my son, Daniel, who was actually, at the time, nine years old. He asked to help figure out what the song OG Original Gamer was about. And so we went through the whole song, and then we watched some more videos, and then it was just like a story ever since then. We've discovered your music, we've discovered Nerdcore, and it's just been amazing. Again, my name is Amanda, and I'm from Ohio in Lorraine. And my son Daniel, who was nine at the time, discovered you and told us about you, and we have loved your music since. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Your T-shirt is on its way. Thank you for calling up. If you want to be on the MCLR's podcast with a story or a message or just give a shout out to someone or something, sign up for the Patreon, patreon.com slash MCLars, and you'll get the proprietary phone number, which allows you to be on the podcast. Next week, we got Insane Ian. Insane Ian is part of the FUMP, the Funny Music Project, and that he's alongside people like Debo Spice, the great Luke Ski, Worm Quartet. You may be like, who are these people? If you know, if you listen to the podcast, I had Worm Quartet on, Timothy Chris from Rochester, but there are a lot of great artists in the FUMP, the Funny Music Project. I've had some songs up there, but I'm not part of the FUMP. I'm part of the, like, the extended FUMP network or something like that. But anyway, Ian talks a lot about the internet and how it's affected his career as a comedy musician. So check that out. That is next week. In the meantime, come see us on tour, mclars.com slash tour. And I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks, Alec.